this is not Genesis. It's not Genesis. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 21 with me this morning. I would like for us together this morning to respond to the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ to come and dine with Him. Now, I know, freshmen, you're studying the book of John with Mr. Little, and he'll, he'll take you right through to the end, and you'll have a wonderful study with him. So I'm jumping the gun by rushing right into chapter 21. But chapter 21 has been where I have spent the last week. I've had occasion this week to listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who has said, come and dine. I've spent time this week before the Lord observing His careful, tender kindness. I've spent time in the presence of the Lord this week spent time in the presence of the Lord this week just thanking Him for that warm, constant, consistent invitation to come and dine with Him. And I can't think of anything that I could do this morning in our service together than to pass along that invitation and to let you hear for yourself the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who says to His disciples, Come. And dine. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, as we look into this text this morning, I want to be mindful of that occasion that gave rise to such gracious words as come and dine. Lord, I want to be mindful that like Peter, I have occasion in which I deny you. I have occasion in which I fail you. I have occasion in which in my own life I'm less than the man that you desire for me to be. And yet also so mindful that you never give up, you never set aside, cast away, but that you draw close to those who are of a broken and contrite spirit. And Lord, I just pray that this morning that the words from our precious Bibles set before us, that the words from our very precious God spoken to us would be the very words that we would desire to hear, that we would respond to in kind. And for that, we will thank you in Christ's name. Amen. In John chapter 21, we read these words, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, And on this wise showed he himself. The Sea of Tiberias is simply another name for the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is a city set on the western shoreline of of Galilee, and so sometimes it was called the Sea of Tiberias. And there were a number of disciples, as we see listed here in verse 2, who were gathered there at that time. Now I should say this, that after the resurrection of Christ, Christ did show himself to his disciples on a couple of occasions, and he said to them, I want you to go back up to Galilee. And so they made that that lengthy trek from Jerusalem back up along the Jordan River, back up to the region of Galilee, and, and there they found themselves once again. That's where they had spent their life, really, 
they really spent little time down in Judea, in Jerusalem. Most of their time was spent up in the northern region of Israel and the Galilean region. And so they've really, in a sense, they've gone back home. And it's up in this place of Galilee that they had made a livelihood fishing. And so when we come to the next verse, in verse 3, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. We, we shouldn't be surprised. We, we shouldn't think, oh, they're, they're running away from God's call upon their lives. I don't know that we can read that into that verse at all. I, I simply see Peter, a fisherman, saying to these others who are also fishermen, I'm going fishing. Fishing is how we eat. Fishing is, is how we make a living. And fishing is what we do. Jesus has asked us to return to Galilee. And, and here it's Galilee. At Galilee, it's, it's time to fish. And so they go fishing. And they say unto him in verse 3, We also go with thee. And so they went forth. Now, they've gone fishing. This is probably the area where they went fishing. This is called the Church of the Primacy of Peter. Uh, My wife and I spent some time there, and perhaps others of you who have had the opportunity to travel to Israel have spent time here as well. This is an old Byzantine-era church. uh, It's a traditional site. We don't know exactly where they launched out to fish. We don't know exactly where Jesus met them on that shoreline to serve them breakfast. We can't know for sure, but I can say this to you. It's not a large area. And so if it wasn't here, it was likely here or here within visual sight. You can look from one side to the other. And we know the area that gave rise to the best fishing. That was in the northern part because of some springs that fed uh, up through the Sea of Galilee. So it was likely somewhere in this area uh, but, but somebody said this is the exact spot. We don't know that. Uh, but this is a place where many people, when they travel to Israel, this is, wh- this is where they go to get a sense of the location where Jesus fed his disciples. Inside, inside this church building uh, is what you're looking at here. This is called Mensa Christi, or the Table of Christ. And some have suggested that it was on this very rock that used to be part of, and, and, and this rock comes out from here and was part of the shoreline. Some have suggested that it was on this very rock that our Lord Jesus set a table for his disciples, that he, that he cooked the fish and served the bread. And again, we can't know that. And we're not bound by Roman Catholic traditions in any sense. Uh, but this is, if you ever get to travel to Israel, this is where you would go. Uh, but that's really not what I wanted to show you. I just want to give you a picture. Uh, what I want to talk about is this thing of dining with Christ. And I'm going to ask two questions this morning. And the first one is this. What often leads up to a time of dining with Christ? Well, excuse me for one moment. Microphone, it's my ears. Okay, I'm sure. This time of dining with Christ. The disciples, they're in Galilee because that's where Christ has appointed them to be. They've gone fishing because that's what they know to do. And they've gone together. Not all 11 of them, but a group of them. And and here's what we read in verse 3. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. They caught nothing. 
Can I, can I make this suggestion? That what often leads to a time of dining with Christ is this thing I call coming to the recognition that our self-sufficiency is really insufficiency. Left to themselves, the disciples who were professional fishermen, and if they were fishing from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which likely they were, if they were indeed fishing from that vantage point, there was likely no real lack of fish to be caught. And yet, in their self-sufficiency of fishing, of doing what they knew how to do, they found themselves insufficient. They hadn't caught anything for breakfast. Never mind the marketplace. They hadn't caught anything for breakfast. The night is spent. They've got to be tired. Who wouldn't be tired? They've got to be discouraged. Who wouldn't be discouraged? They've got to be hungry. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't be hungry being out on that lake through the night trying to catch a catch of fish? What they have discovered is their insufficiency. When we look at the book of Revelation as we glanced into this morning, when you look at the letters that Jesus Christ wrote to the churches of Asia Minor, when you look into the letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans, what we discover is that Jesus very carefully is saying to the Laodiceans in chapter 3 of Revelation, he's saying to them, listen, you think you're sufficient. You think you're rich, you're increased with goods, you have need of nothing. In your minds, you're saying, I'm doing just fine. But the reality is, you're poor, you're wretched, you're blind, you're naked, you have nothing. You think your life is just fine. What I'm trying to tell you is that without me, you're nothing. That's why in that same passage in Revelation 3, Jesus says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open the door, I will come into him and I will, I will sup with him. I will fellowship with him. I will commune with him. I will dine with him. That's a, it's a rich, rich passage there in Revelation 3. And here are the disciples. They've been out on the water. It was just, just a few days earlier that they had found themselves in the upper room in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover with their rabbi, their master, their teacher, their savior. And it was there after that last supper that he had with his disciples as he was walking across the streets from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there along that walk where Jesus likely pointed to a vine that was growing and that area that was rich with vineyards. And it was likely in that area where Jesus said, hey guys, you need to know something. Without me, you can do nothing. He wasn't talking about their vocation. He wasn't really alluding to the fact that they wouldn't be able to catch any fish. What he was getting at is that their lives would not consist of all that it could be and all of its richness and all of its relationship to God 
it, it, would, it would really, it wouldn't have that quality, they wouldn't have that quality of life apart from a dependency upon Christ. That's what he was trying to get across when he said in John chapter 15, without me you can do nothing. And now they have borne that out in their experience as they really could do nothing in the sense of fishing anyways. I think, I think our Lord allowed them to catch no fish in order to illustrate a greater truth. This really wasn't about the fish. It really wasn't about making a living. It really wasn't about the empty nets. I think it was really about illustrating and making a, a vivid point that without Christ, we really can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value. Nothing of real significance. Nothing, nothing of any worth with our lives. And this is illustrated in this simple thing of fishing. And so they've caught nothing. Verse 4, But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. They, they, they didn't recognize Him for whatever reason. They, they didn't know who it was that was on the shore. And then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have you any meat? Have you any food? Did you, in other words, hey guys, did you catch anything? And they, and they responded with, no. And He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. Now, you can only imagine what's going through their mind. Are they wondering, can he see a school of fish that, that we haven't seen? Because they, when they fished on the Sea of Galilee, it's not that they had lines with baits and a hook. It's that they, they, they threw weighted nets in. And the nets would land in the water and, and come down together, and then they would pull the nets out and there would be fish. So the idea was to cast the nets where the fish were. You don't just cast the nets and hope the fish swim in. You, you, you cast hoping, or at least hoping, that, or, or with the purpose of observing the fish and then casting the net. And so I, I wonder if they wondered, does, does he see something from shore that we haven't seen? Maybe as the, as the sun is coming up, maybe there's a shimmer on the water that's giving visibility from the shoreline that we... I, I'm not sure what they were thinking, but... But they did. They cast, therefore, verse 6. And now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, the, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John. That's how John referred to himself in his writings. Saith unto Peter, and we all know who Peter is. Peter's that impetuous, high eye kind of a disciple. I don't know if he's a high eye, but I'd like to think he is. Impetuous. Loves, loves to make an entrance. Loves to speak his mind before he thinks his mind. Peter, the one who at the Last Supper with the disciples said to the Lord Jesus, I'll lay my life down for you. And Jesus' response was, will you really? Before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. Before that rooster crows, Peter, three times you'll deny me. Will you really lay down your life for me? And that Peter who, when he recognized his denial of Christ, went out and wept bitterly. That Peter who was so sorrowful over his sin. That, that Peter who, when he received word that Jesus had risen, 
ran to the tomb with John. That, that Peter who Jesus, when he had risen, said, go tell my disciples and Peter. That Peter who had had a moment of failure, but had not truly forsaken Christ. Just had a moment of failure. Have you ever had moments of failure? Have you ever recognized yourself insufficient for the call of God upon your life because of your own, your own impetuousness, your own dumb reasoning, your own dumb thinking at times? Have you ever, have you ever found yourself in Peter's shoes? That Peter who now, as John nudges him and says, that's, that's Jesus. Watch what Peter does. Now when Simon Peter, middle of verse 7, heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. And I don't know that that means that he was fully naked. I mean, no reason to be. But he was, he was less than fully clothed. And he put on his fisher's coat. Now don't think of this yellow rubber fishing coat that you see on the packages of frozen fish. But he put on his fisher's coat and, and he cast himself into the sea. Just threw himself into the water. And uh, it's not that he's trying to drown himself. It's that he's, he's trying to get to the Lord Jesus as quickly as he can. And that's what he does. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but were 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes. And as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and, and fish laid thereon and bread. Isn't that something? They'll, they couldn't even catch a fish and here was Jesus already on the shore, already cooking the fish. That's a great picture for us. You know, the last time we read of the fish and loaves with Jesus and the disciples, we read back in... Around John chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000 with fish and loaves and the disciples. And He was demonstrating to them in the feeding of the multitude, He was demonstrating that really it's, it's God who can ultimately provide. There's a number of things He's illustrating. He's, he's illustrating the coming abundance of the millennial kingdom. He's illustrating that, that He alone is God in flesh and He's doing what only God can do. There's a number of things He's illustrating. But one of the things He's illustrating is, is that it's God who ultimately will provide for our need. And so now here they are, having caught nothing, Jesus already having the fish on the fire, about to show His disciples, not a multitude now, just a, a quiet setting of, of this small group, He's about to show them once again that it's really only God who can provide. And of course, He lets them catch this multitude of fish. I mean, 353 of, or 153 of them. It's a lot of fish. So, verse 9, As soon as they were come to the land, they saw the fire and the coals there, and the fish laid thereon and bread. And Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. I like that little word, now. Bring of the fish which you have now caught. The, the ones that you caught after I showed you where to drop your net. 
the, the ones that you caught after you heard the sound of my voice. The ones that you caught after you responded to my word. Because prior to him speaking his word, they caught nothing. Have you ever wondered all of the potential that is in your lives? Not if you do what you're pretty sure you know how to do, but of all the potential that is there in your lives, if only you and I would learn how to listen to His Word. I mean, the, the object lesson, the illustration here that Jesus set up, I mean, it's not a coincidence that they didn't catch anything. You understand that, don't you? I mean, the story would read so much less interesting if, if we read, and, and that night they caught 127 fish. And then Jesus said, cast your nets there, and then they caught 153 fish. We'd look at that and we'd say, well, you know, what's the big deal? But the thing is, they caught nothing. When, in and of themselves, they likely thought, we'll catch something, because they were trained professionals after all. But they went from the nothing to the 153 when they responded to the words of God. I've had moments this week, students, where I have recognized my absolute insufficiency. And I don't doubt for a minute that you've had moments in your life, maybe not this week. This has been my turn, my week. You'll have your own time. But maybe you'll have moments where you recognize your own insufficiency before God. And then you'll hear His voice through the written Word. And He'll say something along these lines. Have you tried it my way? This thing called life. This thing called relationships. This thing called worship. This this thing called walking in the Spirit, this thing called being obedient to the Word of God, this thing called maturing in Christ. Have you tried it my way? He might whisper to you. Have you thought about casting your net over on this side? And then they arrive to shore. They bring the fish. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was the net, was not the net broken. And then Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. Come and dine. Students, I wish my heart could so effectively communicate, my words could so effectively communicate to you the preciousness of such an invitation. Come and dine. Just come and dine. Hey guys, pull up a rock. I'm setting a table for you. Later on the Catholics will call it Mensa Christi. They'll think it's over there, but we're here. Let them think what they want. But but come and dine. Just come and dine. Just Just... Peter, I know, I know you're, you're soaking wet. I've got a fire going. Just come right over here. 
And the Lord would say the same thing to you and I. Just, just pull up alongside me. Stop, stop rushing ahead in your own power, your own strength, thinking you're going to make this thing work. Just, just take some time out of your busy schedule and just come and dine. None of the disciples, verse 12, none of the disciples durst ask Him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed Himself to the disciples after that He was risen from the dead. And so the question we've asked is what often leads up to a time of dining with Christ? And the answer for me is simply coming to the recognition that our self-sufficiency is really insufficiency. And so that brings me to my second question. I'm only going to ask two questions of the text this morning. My second question is this. What happens when we dine with Christ? We hear the invitation, come and dine. So the question is, what happens when we do? What if, I, what if I do dare to walk to that door of my heart, so to speak, and open it and let him come in? He's been knocking. What if I do actually dare to open that door and, and invite him in, not for the sake of salvation because we're saved already, and that's a text to the saved and of the church. But what if I were to let him in closer to this place of, of fellowship that he desires with me. And, and what if I actually do draw up to that fire of coals on the beach and reach for the fish and the bread that he has so graciously supplied? What if, what if I do say to him in the quietness of my dorm room, Lord, I'd like to sit with you for a few minutes. I've just brewed a cup of coffee. I'd like to just sit with you for a few minutes in my dorm room this morning. My roommate's gone to Walmart for the afternoon. I've got the, the space to myself. Lord, I'd just like to have some time with you. What, what might actually happen as we, as we pull up to dine with Christ? Number one, I think there's wonderful opportunity for restoration, don't you? I mean, isn't that what's about to happen with Peter? There's, I mean, you, you, you know the rest of the text likely. Let's just read through part of it. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? They had dined. And I can picture, the text doesn't say it explicitly here in verse 15, but I can picture them getting up and maybe Jesus taking a little bit of a Meander along the beach there with Peter. I can picture Peter being so thankful for that restoration of that relationship. I mean, this isn't the first time Peter has seen Jesus since the resurrection. He's already met with him. I believe he was probably restored immediately. But I think at this moment, as Peter and Jesus are enjoying that time of quietness together. I can, I can picture our Lord walking along with Peter saying, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? It's a time of restoration. It's a, 
it's a time to recognize, and I'm, and I'm thinking about Peter. I'm also thinking about myself. I'm thinking about you. And this thing of restoration. And, and I think for Peter, I think it was a time when Peter came to the recognition that personal failure is an event for sure. But, but it doesn't have to be a destiny. Sure, Peter failed. When we were in Jerusalem, we went to this little place in the city called, I think it was called Peter and Caliantu, and don't ask me to spell it, but it's another one of these traditional sites where they have a, a bronze statue of a rooster in Peter. I mean, it was an event, an event enough to be recorded in Scripture, an event enough for people to travel from all over the world to come to the place where Peter might have been when he denied Christ. I mean, it was an event marked in history for sure. But it wasn't Peter's destiny. It was an event, but it was not his destiny. Personal failure, it's, it's, it's not necessarily our initial failure that ruins us, but what follows matters greatly. That denial of Christ did not ruin Peter. You understand that? Because he didn't stay in that place of denial. He didn't stay in that state of denial. He didn't stick to his story. He, he got out of it. And how he responded. The Bible tells us he went out and he wept bitterly. If that's not repentance, I don't know what is. It's, it's what follows that matters greatly. When properly faced, failure provides us with opportunity to learn some hard lessons about ourselves. Do you think Peter had some lessons that he learned when he said to Jesus, I'll die for you? I, th I think Peter had some things to learn about himself. I think he learned that he wasn't a man of steel. I think he learned that he was susceptible to fleshly reactions in the place of adversity. I think he learned that he wasn't, that he wasn't who he wanted to be all the time. That he was human. And sometimes when we fail and we face it properly, we realize some things about ourselves that, that often we don't want anybody else to know. I love this one. God doesn't abandon us in times of failure. He draws near to us and shows us the next step. Here's a little verse I was meditating on this morning. I've been meditating on a number of verses this week, but, but th this is from Psalm chapter 34. Let me read it to you. Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. The Lord is nigh or near unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. I think if there's ever a guy that was broken hearted and contrite, humble in his spirit, it was Peter who had gone out and wept bitterly. It was Peter who went back to Galilee because that's where Christ told him to go. It was Peter who, when he recognized that it was Jesus on the shore, jumped out of the boat and went after Him. And now it's Peter who's walking alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to allow God to confront us with our sin if we're to grasp the greatness of His forgiveness 
2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. That was another verse I was looking at this morning. 2 Samuel 12, 7. Nathan the prophet says to David the king, he says, Thou art the man. I was talking with my wife on our way here after teaching our Sunday school class this morning, which is why I came in late. I didn't oversleep. But I said to my wife on the way, I said, can you imagine if 2 Samuel chapter 7, or chapter 12, verse 7, I said, can you imagine if it said, thou art the man, and then David responded to Nathan by saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. If you don't know the context of that verse, you need to look at it. Nathan was saying to David, David, you've, you've sinned. Imagine if David said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. That wasn't me. Not my fault. But that's not how it reads. Thou art the man. And then David's response is very appropriate. Peter's response is very appropriate. He allows God to confront him with his sin. Not in this situation here at this point in time. That's already been dealt with. The Lord had warned him that he would sin, that he would deny him. And, and when he denied him, that was the time that God confronted him. He, he knew in his heart what he did. That's why he went out and wept bitterly. But it's when we allow God to confront us with our sin that we're able to grasp the greatness of his forgiveness. So there's opportunity for restoration. There's also opportunity for recommitment. Here Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? I want you to notice this. Notice, first of all, what Jesus doesn't do. Notice what he doesn't do. And this is important. This is helpful to me when I come alongside others who also have had an event of failure. This is what I, I need to not do what Jesus doesn't do. We ask the question, what would Jesus do? We also need to ask the question, what would Jesus not do? Let me show you what he does not do. First of all, he does not try to make Peter feel guilty. They don't get up from that fire and that fish and the bread, and he doesn't walk with Peter along that beach and say, hey Peter, how are you feeling right now? Feeling pretty bad? Left me alone there after Gethsemane? Feeling pretty good about that, are you Peter? Proud of yourself? He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't humiliate him publicly. Hey guys, come, come have something to eat. Oh, I see you brought Peter with you. Peter, do you want something to eat? Yes, Lord. Are you sure? You're going to change your mind halfway through the dinner because that's what you do. You change your mind. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask him how sorry he is. He doesn't say, Peter, are you more sorry than the Roman soldiers who did this? Hey, have you seen my scars, Peter? You know, that hurt. Look at my back, Peter. Look where they whipped me. He doesn't do that. He, he, he doesn't ask him how sorry he is. He doesn't say, Peter, you, you promised me never to do this again. You promised right now, Peter, never ever to deny me again. Or else. Because I can he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't make Peter promise never to sin again. He simply asks, do you love me? It's not an antagonistic question. It's an opportunity for Peter to recommit, to reconsider. He says it three times, do you love me? Dr. Ray Pritchard says this, when Christ asks the question the third time, Peter's heart is grieved. And he blurts out, Lord, you know all things. With those words, Peter renounces all his self-confidence. There was a time when Peter thought he knew. Now he's saying, Lord, you know all things. On that fateful night in the upper room, he thought he knew himself, but he didn't. Now he's not so sure. He doesn't even trust his own heart. Instead, he trusts in the Lord who knows all things. This is a mighty step forward in Christian growth. It is a great advance to come to the place where you can say with conviction, my trust is in the Lord alone. Sometimes we have to hit bottom and hit it hard before we can say those words. Did you see the words in your text? Did you see the words in your text in verse 17? He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus isn't antagonizing Peter. He's not humiliating Peter. He's not schooling Peter. He's giving Peter this opportunity to recommit, to reconsider his love for Christ. And now he's going to give Peter the opportunity to count the cost once again. You know, a disciple has to count the cost, right? And so watch what our Lord does. He says to Peter in verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. That's a, the position of being on a cross. And another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Wow. He gives Peter the opportunity to reconsider his love. We need that opportunity. He gives Peter the opportunity to recount the cost. We need that opportunity. Peter had said to him in the upper room, I'll die for you. And now Jesus is saying, listen, I've got some news for you. You, you actually, you will. You will die for me. Now, do the math. Count the cost. Peter, follow me. The invitation here of come and dine is not just come and dine, it's also come and die. Jesus is saying to his disciple, come and dine, but he's also saying very specifically to Peter, come and die. It's not a morbid thing. In a book entitled Hitler's Cross by Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who is the pastor at 
uh, Moody's Church in Chicago, Moody Memorial. Erwin Lutzer writes about the life of Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Pastor Bonhoeffer, in his early 30s, during the Third Reich in Germany in the days of World War II, Pastor Bonhoeffer spoke against the Nazification of Germany. He, wasn't, he was not impressed with what Hitler was doing. He was not impressed with how the churches were responding to Hitler. He was not impressed with how Hitler was able to hide behind the cross of Christianity so often in his, in his incredible evil doings. And so Bonhoeffer spoke up about that, and that cost Bonhoeffer his life. He was arrested, he was taken to Flossenburg, a concentration camp, and he was hung in his 30s. And Lutzer writes about that occasion in his book, Hitler's Cross, and he writes about it in a chapter entitled, The Cost of Discipleship in the Third Reich. And the subtitle of that chapter is, Come and Die. Come and dine, come and die. And so I've borrowed some thoughts from that a little bit here. And this is what Lutzer says. If we ask Bonhoeffer, or ask why Bonhoeffer had the courage to be martyred, we can only answer that he died many times before he was hanged at the concentration camp in Flossenburg. He was passionately convinced that discipleship meant death. Death to our own comforts, death to our own agendas, and when necessary, physical death too. Christianity is a religion of suffering. A man throws himself into the arms of God and, and awakes in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is that place where we, we wrestle, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. That's Gethsemane. Gethsemane is learning how to die to the flesh, to die to self. Our Lord Jesus Christ in His deity, in His humanity, showed us at Gethsemane was what it was like to die to self. If Christ died, should not we follow in His footsteps? Look at Luke 16. Then said Jesus unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for My sake shall save it. I like Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Watch what Peter asks. Verse 21. Or verse 20, then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. So picture the Lord and Peter walking along. Peter, do you love me? I love you. Do you really love me? Yeah. Do you really, really love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And they're having this conversation. Peter, you're willing to die for me? You're willing to follow me? And then Peter looks over his shoulder and he sees John who's walking along behind. And he says to Jesus, what about him? What about him? Now that's, a, that's a very natural question, isn't it? It's very normal to wonder about the Lord's expectations of John, isn't it? 
What, what about John? That's normal to ask that question. But I love Jesus' answer. It's none of your business, Peter. That's my paraphrase, but look at what Jesus says. Verse 22. If I will that he tarry till I come, will you die in the meantime? Right? What, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. We don't have to look left and right to see what others are going to do in this invitation to come and die. We don't have to look left and right to see what others are going to do. We, we, just, we just have to follow. And then I finish with this. And Pastor Doherty alluded to this moment in time earlier in our service. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, whether, whether now alive I labor to be accepted of Him, or when I die and go to heaven, I labored to be accepted of Him. In other words, to be acceptable. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This week, in a very tender, quiet way, I heard our Lord Jesus Christ say, come and dine. This week, in a very clear, invaluable way, I have heard the Lord Jesus Christ say, come and die. Die to yourself so that you can follow me unimpeded, unhindered. Just follow. And students, I love you. I meant to say when I got up, thank you for all your hard work this weekend. You're a treasure. My prayer for you is that you also hear our Lord Jesus Christ say to you, come and dine, come and die. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, you have done above all that we could ever ask or think in sending your own son to die in our place that we might dine with him. Help us to continue to learn the value of coming alongside in a surrendered attitude to your Son. Help us learn the value of dying to ourselves that we might live in the power of the risen Christ through the leading of your Holy Spirit. And for that, we'll say thank you. Thank you for Peter's life. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor.